Dr. Barbara Peacock, welcome to the Restoring the Soul podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be with you today and with your listening audience and just thankful for this special day. I am too. Uh, We were talking before I hit record and delightful conversation. So I, I am really looking forward to this conversation. But one of the things that I commented on and if I hold up the book, of course, nobody can see it, is your book with University Press, Soul Care in African-American Practice. I said, not only did I enjoy the book, but it's one of the best looking, gorgeous books that I have seen. It's just so well designed and done. So talk about that. Um, how, how did that all happen? Yes, uh, I'm with you. I'm partial. Uh, Michael, one day I was sitting here in my uh, office, and as you can see, I have a collection of books behind me. It's not a fake screen. It's it's the real (laughs) deal. And I have books throughout the house and I've given away hundreds uh, of books. And so um, I'm I'm kind of a bookworm. Um, I remember growing up and enjoying books. And uh, when I became a teenager, I said to my mom, I was like, well, mom, why didn't you tell me about X, Y and Z? She said, well, you read everything I thought you knew, but Uh. I didn't know. And um, but as it relates to the cover. Uh, I was thankful so much for the opportunity to, to work with InterVarsity Press. What a wonderful organization that are committed to uh, spirituality, Christianity, and the disciplines of the faith. And uh, so we, we were all working together to discover a cover. And so they came back to me with this cover and they were pretty excited about it. It was uh a cover with kente cloth and leaders like Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass and uh, a picture of Rosa Parks and Coretta Scott King on the front. And it was pretty exciting. And I looked at it and I was like, Hmm, that looks like the sixties, <laughs> uh. like the sixties, sixties. It looks like uh, this, the, it looked like the civil rights movement. It looked like uh, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. And, you know, all these things that, I grew up with. And I said, I think we need something a little bit more modern. And uh, so they went back to the drawing board and uh, they came back with a rendition of what you see here on the cover here of the book, So Care and African-American Practice. And we kept tweaking it. It's an overlay of uh, four different layers of graphics, if you look. And it speaks amazingly um, to the the reader or to the person that I like to call the person that's looking at the picture, a person that practices Visio Divina, a divine revelation and a divine encounter with the Lord. And so um, I use it in my classes. We do uh, soul care labs. But anyway, this design, it draws you in. And every time you look at it, you see something different. So one day in class, a student says, I see a peacock. I was like, a peacock? (laughs) That's like my last name. They snuck it in. (laughs) And the interesting uh, story behind that is, uh, as you read the book, um, you found out that my mother's maiden name was Peacock, and I married a peacock. And when I was pledging a sorority in undergrad school, they named me Madam Peacock, and I did Madam Peacock fashion extravaganza. So I have this whole uh, genre of peacocks, and we have peacocks all, all over our houses, all, all over our house. I say houses. We've been in many houses. We've lived in so many states. But uh, we have a rug with peacocks. But uh, the, the peacock, if you t- take a look, is on the front. Um Right above in the middle of the forehead of the yes. lady. Do you see it, right? I see it, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, how could that be? And and that just that just lets you know uh the the, the divinity of God and the awesomeness of God and the omnipresence of God. It's such a beautiful uh gift that he gave us. I mean, I'm sure they didn't start off trying to have a peacock on this book or a bird <laughs> or whatever, but uh it's there. So I'm just so thankful and the cover continues to speak no matter how many times you look at look at it, it just speaks volumes and it uh it continues to reveal truth to me and to those that are in the class and those that read the book. So that's the, kind of like a sum, summation of the cover. Well, InterVarsity, InterVarsity oh. might not set out to have put the peacock on there, but the, the, the Lord probably did. He was like, wait till I surprise her and show her that. But it, it really is, even before you mentioned Visio Divina, it just draws you in 
And I find myself gazing at it because there's there's so many different images. But will you talk a little bit more about Visio Divina? That's a classic spiritual practice that goes back centuries, but also you talked about it in the book. And we practice it some here at Restoring the Soul with our intensive counseling programs, but we don't have an opportunity to do a lot of it. So give an example of how you've used that in your trainings for soul care. Well, as you've discovered also in the reading that I attended uh, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and I went to the South Hamilton campus for my doctoral studies. And one of the pictures um, or illustrations that they shared with us was a rendition of Jesus and the Lamb. And uh, there's it's just a beautiful uh, depiction of how Jesus carries us. And that just ministered to my soul while I was in seminary. And one of the things I wanted to include in this book was a more Afrocentric picture of Jesus and the lamp. And you, and uh, the book is divided into two parts. Uh, the totality of the book is 10 chapters, but uh, the first part is five chapters on what I call spiritual leaders or spiritual giants in the African-American community. And the latter part is the other five spiritual leaders. And most of those spiritual leaders have uh, gone on to be with the Lord, but there are three spiritual leaders in the book that are still with us today. But I, I just love Vizio Divina. It it calls us to pause. And uh, according to Psalm 4610, it calls us to be still and to know that he's God, to be still and to allow um, the spirit of God in us to see the beauty of God's creation through different visible objects. Uh, you could do Visio Divina st- staring at the sky. You could do Visio Divina meditating on a beautiful flower, uh, the intricacies of God's creation. Uh, but so often Visio Divina is done with uh, pictures and illustrations. And so the whole, the whole process, uh, just like Lexio Divina, calls us to, to stop, to pause, to reflect, and to grow. Uh, that's what I like about the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are all designed for us to grow closer and to develop a more intimate relationship with the Lord. And you wrote in the book right at the beginning about how you grew up in farmland, North Carolina. And um, you said that that predisposed you to being focused on matters of the soul and, and spiritual disciplines about that. And I, I think what you meant by that was that as opposed to just believing the right things and going to church, but that even at a young age, there was this emphasis on your inner life. Yes, yes. Uh, one of the things, you know, growing up on the farm, that's all you know. And then you go off to college and you get out into the world and you'd be like, oh, my God, I missed out on all of these wonderful things. Like, how did I even exist? But as you grow older, you realize the importance of the formation that God had designed for you for, or for me on that farm. And one thing that farm offered me was the opportunity to be creative. I used to love to take pictures, love just used to take rolls and rolls of pictures and send them off and get them developed. So even then I was engrossed in Visio Divina, but I didn't know, I didn't call it Visio Divina. I just love taking pictures and, and love the creation that I was surrounded with all the animals and, and the trees and watching things grow. So it's like, the, and in, God embedded me with this desire to be able to articulate it later in my life, decades later. I think it's fascinating. You know, we all around the world, there are art museums and people will make pilgrimages and they'll pay money and they'll wait in line to go see pictures. And they may be atheists, but we know intuitively that there's something about um, if I go and I see something it it might move me or there might be something important in that to reveal to me. Do you have a favorite piece of art or favorite artist uh, that has meant something to your heart? Yes, I am uh, a big fan of of Van Gogh. (laughs) Uh, I love, uh, I love his strokes, Mm. Uh, his imagination, his individuality, his unfinishedness, (laughs) Mm. if that's such a word how he was willing to go against the grain and he painted from his soul. He painted from uh, the depth of his soul from even in the midst of pain. Uh, he, he uh, would just 
paint these uh, these short breath strokes. Another uh, painting I have, which uh, I think I briefly mentioned in the book, is a picture of uh, Dr. Rosa Parks. In the book, I refer to her as Mrs. Rosa Parks, but she received several doctoral degrees. And the painting that I have is a painting of uh, it, it's it's uh, three dimensional. So it has a painting of Mrs. Parks sitting on the bus in the front. And that's kind of like in the background. And then in the forefront, there's a, uh, a painting of there's the drawing of Dr. Parks being arrested and having uh, her thumbprint uh, at the police station. And when I look at that, you know, I said, that's that just that just uh, touches my heart because I think about how Dr. Mrs. Rosa Parks was a woman of faith. And that without saying anything, we can't see a greater depiction of meditation and contemplation without saying anything. God used her to change the trajectory of a nation, of a people. What a movement. And then uh, I like to identify contemplation as going deeper into the discipline of meditation. And so when she was being arrested and her fingerprint was being taken and, and she knew she was going to uh, go to jail, she just had such a quiet, gentle posture. So uh, I love that painting. And like I said, I love Van Gogh. Um, I just, I love art. I love um, African-American art. And our, our daughter is an artist and I did take a class in undergrad on art. So I just love uh, drawings and paintings and sketches and those kinds of things. And you included a number of uh, photographs, including basically head or upper body shots of the different spiritual heroes from uh, Frederick Douglass to Dr. Rosa Parks, as you said, and Martin Luther King and others, a couple of which are still alive, the most haunting image. And I have yet to uh, actually do a Visio Divina and set my gaze upon this because it was, I'm looking at it now, utterly disturbing. It's uh, an image and it says the deck of the slave ship wildfire from April of 1860. And you see this deck that appears to be 50, 80 feet long, and there's ropes that go upwards, so the the, the sails are, are full. And then at the very end of the deck, there's like another level, and there are there are African human beings just crowded into there. And because I know less about the history of the slave trade and more about uh, the Holocaust, it it had that same stomach churning sense of looking at it. And as, as awful as that feels internally, it's something important spiritually. It's not just a physical reaction. So can you tell me first, why did you include that picture? And how, especially as a black woman and a minister of the gospel, uh, as a human being, how does that picture affect you? Well, one of the things that compelled me to write about soul care and spiritual direction from an African-American perspective uh, was the lack of material as it relates to spirituality and spiritual disciplines in the African-American faith. Because as I was going through seminary, I saw a lot about spirituality and disciplines and formation from people that don't look like me, but I saw very little as it relates to those in our community. And I said to myself, for sure, (laughs) for sure, we are a spiritual people. And for sure, we have something to do with this thing called spiritual formation. And so I went on a journey of seeking uh, an entry point for the beginning of African American spiritual direction, a beginning point for African American soul care. And I know in our uh, environment today, we often merge the concept of self-care and soul care. We often think about soul care as dealing with stories and this 
uh, soft cushiony thing, I like to call it. But uh, when I talk about soul care, I use it in this book as being parallel to spiritual direction and the necessity for that discipline. So if, if we're going to talk about an entry point for spiritual direction and soul care, we have to ask ourselves, well, when did this happen? And where did it happen? And who did it? And so, yes, I got excited when I read about spiritual leaders like uh, Frederick Douglass and, and Rosa Parks and Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King, which to me is one of the greatest spiritual director leaders of a nation. God used him mightily to make a movement in the civil rights movement. He and his wife, Coretta Scott King. But if we back into it, we have to say, well, spirituality didn't from an African-American context didn't begin with them. So when does spirituality, spiritual direction and soul care begin in an African-American culture? Well, simple. If I'm coming from the coast, the West Coast of Africa, and I'm on my way to America, something is happening in the middle of that. Before I reach my destination, something is happening in me. Something is happening in my soul spiritually. So I use the transatlantic as an entry point for the beginning of spiritual direction and soul care from an African-American perspective. When people from different tribes and different cultures and different languages and different faiths were packed like sardines on a ship, but they were forced to be attentive to one another's souls. They were forced to listen and to care as people died. So I want to read here uh, on page uh, 14 in the book, because one of the sources I found very helpful in my research was the source uh, uh, entitled, the book was entitled Beyond the Resurrection, and it was by Kellerman and Edwards. So I'm going to begin with their quote on the bottom of page 14, and then I'm going to lead us on to page 15 in my own words. Okay. So uh, you notice the picture, the deck of the slave ship wildfire, April 1860. Um, and, but let me, let me share with you before I go there. So I knew my assignment in writing this book was over when the Clotilda was discovered, the slave ship that went to Africa and when slavery had been prohibited Someone took it upon themselves to go and to bring slaves back. And that ship was discovered recently. So when I uh, I knew my research was done, that was in tw- May 24, 2019, was when this uh, remnants of this ship was, was discovered. And that's on page 157 for those of you that have the book and for those of you that will get the book. So I knew that that was what I was supposed to do. So here on page 14. As I was saying, as Kellerman and Edwards visualized the transporting of slaves from Africa to America, they wrote, and I quote, even while stowed like animals below deck, they saw the shining North Star of God with upturned eyes of faith looking out spiritual portals, end of quote. And then I write, while in chains, Many slaves expressed great faith in God. The only one who could deliver them from such inhumane circumstances. Many were infected with ferocious diseases, including respiratory ailments and fevers that accompanied infections. Moans and groans penetrated the atmosphere as a result of pain sickness, sorrow, and loss. No doctors were there to prescribe medications or apply appropriate salves. No preachers were there to perform eulogies. No food was there to fill hungry bellies in the midnight hour. During these challenging hours and days on slave ships, many Africana fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and cousins were attentive toward each other's weary, tired, and wounded souls. Many times their conversations kept them alive. Care, love, and prayerful conversation were the best prescription for the oppressed. Imagine 
strangers, listening to, caring for, and encouraging one another in such conditions. See them holding one another even as they died. All too often, death was inevitable and at times considered a more comforting option than life. Those who lived expressed their faith by believing and trusting God that a better day would come. And for me, Michael, this is the beginning of soul care and spiritual direction in African-American practice. What a treat to have you read that. That was beautiful. And I love your writing. I want to skip forward two sentences. And would you read, would you actually read the next paragraph? Because there's a line there that I want to help unpack or have you help us unpack. So that, that next sentence that begins with, it was on those slave ships. Okay. It was on those slave ships making the middle passage that we find the origins of African-American spiritual direction and soul care. Even though the intent was to destroy black people and to strip them of their heritage, God's divine hand prevailed. In the midst of the most inhumane conditions, the slaves were strengthened by their spirituality. As Johnson reminded us, slaves did not debate the existence of God, but wondered whether God was with them in their struggle. Thank you, especially for extending that. Um, there's so, so, so much there. But the first thing is that, that these were real people that were uh, stripped of their dignity, um, that that were kidnapped, stolen away, made refugees, taken from their homeland. And it's it's the very worst kind of suffering in this paradox that something sustained them. And I won't suggest that they were thriving, but that somehow in the very worst of circumstances that there was something where they were okay and it was their connection. And in the world that we live in today that seems to be upside down and, and turned around, um, we desperately need that kind of soulful spirituality. And I guess my question is, would you talk about the difference between believing Christianity or praying a prayer to get saved and spirituality? Because there was something different from just, well, we believe these things to something deep within that really sustain them and what you're calling the spirituality. Yes. Yeah, so you're talking about the question is the difference between salvation <laughs> and I guess I will call it spirituality with tenacity. Okay. Say more about that. Spirituality with tenacity. Yeah. I want, I want to read uh, something here on page 151 and then we can continue uh, because you, I, it ties in. Dr. Peacock, you can read the whole book if you want. It's uh, it's, it's <laughs> It says on page 151, the African-American community has a pattern of continuously resurrecting itself. Despite the hangings and lynchings that scourged and destroyed brown, black and tan bodies, fathers and mothers and sons and daughters, African-Americans still exude an inward spiritual strength that keeps on rising regardless of adversity, injustice, and persecution. This is not disregarding the reality of the struggle. But I believe we are conditioned in our DNA to get up and go at it again and again and again. You know, there's there's so many things popping in my mind right now, Michael. I'm thinking about the thief on the cross that was being crucified with Jesus. And he said, remember me in paradise. So looking at that, we can look at the beauty of salvation, but we can also look at some of the challenges that we have. Like at a dying moment, this thief 
gave his life to the Lord. So salvation is bloody. Jesus died. We reap the benefit. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of ourselves, not of our works that anybody could boast. But salvation comes with a cost. And in this book, I, I talk I talk about um, Howard Thurman, who's who, <laughs> okay. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna come away here. Well, let's 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 read this. And I'm, I'm still with your question here, uh, Michael. Um, but Howard Thurman talks about suffering and how freedom is birthed out of suffering. And he says on page 136, he says, what would life be like if there was no suffering, no pain? The startling discovery is made that if there were no suffering, there would be no freedom. Men will make no mistakes consciously or unconsciously. The race could make no mistakes. There would be no error. There would be no possibility of choice at any point or in any sense whatsoever. And then he continues. Freedom, therefore, cannot be separated from suffering. This then may be one of the ways in which suffering pays for is right. Wow. So we don't have any freedom without suffering. Technically, somebody's going to pay a price for freedom. And I that's the climate that we are in in our nation. And you mentioned earlier George Floyd. George Floyd paid a price. Breonna Taylor paid a price. Martin Luther King paid a price. You know, I had the opportunity of running down to a mourner's bench at 14 years of age and giving my life to the Lord inside of a church. But my ancestors paid a price for their salvation. If they were caught worshiping God, independent of their slave masters, their life was at stake. And so they would, they would slip away into the woods and have church so that one day we could have, as a people of color, our own church. They paid a price for our salvation because in the beginning, we went to our master's churches and we sat in the balcony. And then we realized we had a spirituality of our own that cried out from our African roots and we were willing to pay the price for that. A spirituality formed in suffering. Yes. And then if Christendom didn't think it was enough to beat us and to preach twisted biblical principles, um, there was a Bible that was made, that was put together, that was published called the Slave Bible. And in the Slave Bible, 90% of the Old Testament was extracted. So you can imagine anything about Moses or a Sabbath day or freedom or love or creation and the equality of all humanity stripped from the pages. And these were American so-called Christian slave owners that were doing this to basically. Well, this, particular Bible, this particular Bible was printed in London. Okay. It was printed in London in 1807 for the British West India islands. But we know if one hurts, we all hurt. So if you're oppressing me, that really means that there's something 
in you that's oppressive. And so you have to oppress another person to feel better about yourself. So even though the slaves were the only ones that may have been the recipients of this, it's affecting our whole country, our world, even right now. It's all, nothing can be separated. Everything is interrelated. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to uh, cut you off, but I wanted to get the location right for the London uh, Slave Bible. Yeah, no, no worries at all. And actually, I'm so happy that, you know, we're we're starting with your book, but your book is much more than just, hey, read this book and here's some stories of some African-Americans that did some spiritual things. It's really so much bigger than that. And you're encouraging us to think about slaves who came over and how that kind of suffering was the genesis of this spirituality, but there's much bigger implications for all of us. And I, I almost hesitate to say this because it seems sacrilegious as a white man, but I had this sense that with this suffering, which one could never justify, that that there's a kind of advantage that African-Americans have to the spirituality because this this is so woven into their soul and their inner being, which goes back to you were you grew up on a farm and there was something internal in you that you used the term earlier. It's part of our DNA that people that don't have a history of suffering or they don't have a history of needing God other than to pray a prayer and to go to heaven, that it's oftentimes their life is frankly superficial and their faith doesn't have a lot of rootedness to it. Yes. Uh, it kind of brings me back to the term that we call white privilege. And uh, I remember having a conversation with a dear friend over the summer uh, sitting out on my deck and he was feeling guilty of the white privilege. So I just kind of flipped it. I said, what makes you think that your life was so much better than mine? <laughs> I said, I enjoyed my life and I've enjoyed it. So we, we, we tend to think that one way is better than the other, but, but we have to look at the context. Yes. I understand the concept of white privilege that whites can get away with certain things, X, Y, and Z. But to think one has white privilege, I think it's oppression within that mindset, even within itself. I have to oppress you to think I'm better than you, which means to me, you it's like some type of psychology going on in the head that in Christ, there's nobody's better than anybody. And uh, I want to sing a song to you uh, uh, and to those listening, Michael, if you don't mind. Oh, please. I feel like I'm talking to the the female version of Cornell West, because you're, you know, <laughs> Cornell will, will be reading from something and then singing and requiting poetry. So again, hey, if you've got till seven o'clock tonight, we'll just keep recording, please. It's a song I learned in fourth grade. Mm. As I said, I was raised on the farm, but in fourth grade, I went to live with my aunt and uncle in Baltimore, Maryland, and I attended Carter G. Woodson School. And at Carter G. Woodson School, I had a white teacher, but I didn't know he was white because I was living with my aunt. So I sent the picture back to my mother <laughs> of this man that was my teacher. And she was like, why did you send me a picture of this white man? And I was like, oops, I didn't know he was white. So anyway, he taught us this song and I just thought it was wonderful. And I'm not the, the psalmist by no means. I'm not Alicia Keys and any of that. I'm just... Uh, homegrown, but uh, the song has wonderful implications. And it goes like this. Good night, I said to my little son. So tired when the day was done. Then he said, as I tucked him in, tell me, daddy, what color Scott's skin? What color is Scott's skin? What color is God's skin? I said, it's black, brown, yellow. Is it red? Is it white? Every man's the same in the good Lord's sight. He looked at me with the shining eyes. I knew I could tell no lies. He said, Daddy, why do the different races fight? If every man's the same in the good Lord's sight. What color is God's skin? 
What color is Scott's skin? I said, it's black, brown, yellow. Is it red? Is it white? Every mess the same in the good Lord's sight. Every mess the same in the good Lord's sight. Every mess the same in the good Lord's sight. Good Lord's sight. Thank you for that. I love how it included the the hard question or the hard point. You know, there's a there's a more popular version of that, red and yellow, black and white. You know, but but it doesn't have the part about why do people fight. In other words, it it high, what you're saying highlights the reality that hey, it might be true everyone's equal, but that's not how it plays out. Especially a fourth grade girl that's singing that song. You know, as you were singing, I saw on the Zoom screen, you closed your eyes and I closed my eyes and I just kind of took it in. And not unlike Visio Divina, we probably take singing for granted much more in the church than something like Visio Divina or Lexio Divina. But um, the singing, there's a vibration, there's a resonance within that it gets into our bones. Um, So I think this is an okay thing to say. And again, forgive me for being the uninformed white man, but the term Negro spiritual, um, that's something that I believe is still used to describe the spiritual songs that were sung as slaves were working in the fields. And the song that you sang had a simplicity to it. And there were ups and downs that seemed very intentional that bring different levels of resonance inside. So first, can you talk about the importance of songs for the men and women that their spirituality grew in that suffering in that passage across the Atlantic, but also just what's the effect of that singing on us? Yes. Singing is a great part of our culture. We remember the late Aretha Franklin. She was uh, considered the queen of soul. We sing the blues. Uh, We sung in the fields to keep, keep ourselves motivated. <laughs> you know, when you're tired and you're hurting, what are you going to do? Sometimes you just moan. And uh, when you start off with a church that has no instruments, no organs, no pianos, no guitars, no drums, our hands and our feet became our instruments. Our voices became our instruments. And so song and Negro spirituals are very important. But I think about Harriet Tubman, (laughs) who used singing as a code language to call out to those that were being summons for the Underground Railroad, which was a movement to free slaves. And so... Singing brings healing. Singing touches the soul. Singing is meaningful. And they're they're, they're love songs. (laughs) Today's my husband's birthday. (laughs) And uh, a a love song is a good thing on a birthday. Mm. Um, We've been married for 42 years. And I'm thankful to. Uh, have the opportunity to be married to a man that loves God and loves me. And that was my prayer for our daughter, that when she got married one day, that she would marry a man that loves God and loves her. But a man cannot love a woman effectively until he first loves God. So many good things in so many different directions. I want to come back to uh, the book, and you talked about how it's divided into two sections. And I want to talk about a couple of the characters, and I'd like to end with uh, Dr. Renita Weems as you talk about detachment. But uh, Frederick Douglass, who was a freed slave and um, educated and went on to become a prominent uh, leader in the Black community and in history, And you spoke about how Lectio Divina, this sacred reading, 
uh, and that practice was something that was a part of his life and not just something he did, but something that he actually became. Can you comment on that? Yes, indeed. Uh, one of the things that was necessary, if, if uh, being that I was writing a book about spiritual disciplines, that's really what uh, soul care and African-American practices. It's about spiritual disciplines and spiritual disciplines don't have a color. And at the end, I talk about is the spirituality of a person different or like, you know, so in the end, yes, it may be different. Maybe we sing uh, Negro spirituals, but we all uh, are, are focusing on the same purpose. That's the relationship with God that we're seeking, the intimacy with God. So we're more we're more alike than we are different. So as I search for persons that practice spiritual disciplines, I had to get into the psyche of the person for it to be drawn out in order for me to understand the journey of the slave. I had to be on the ship in order for me to understand uh, I mean, I didn't go looking up Frederick Douglass. I was just reading about Frederick Douglass. And as I read about Frederick Douglass and I read that his master's wife, Mrs. Ald, A-U-L-D, was the one that taught Frederick Douglass to read. I was intrigued because as I read, I came to understand that Mrs. Ald would read to her children. She would read the Bible to her children. And she noticed while she was reading the Bible to her children that as a young boy, Douglas took an interest. And so she began to read the Bible to Douglas and he began to memorize it. Wow. Just through the reading. And just through the reading. So her reading, she read slowly to Douglas. And as we look at the different steps of uh, a Lectio, we see that it's a slow, sacred reading. And so when I looked at the journey of Douglas, I was like, aha, that's a man who practiced Lectio that would never be attributed to practicing that discipline if God had not shown me what was really going on. But Mr. All didn't like Douglas learning mm. because he knew that learning was power. Knowledge was power. But thank God for Mrs. All. Thank God that God put that desire in her heart and in his heart, in her desire to fulfill it and his heart to know it. And that's how God began to grow Douglas up. And later on, he became an educated man and a phenomenal speaker. And uh, I attribute his learning to read that slow, sacred reading as the discipline of Lectio Divina. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as you're talking about discipline, Yes, that's something that we can do as a practice. But with almost all of the people you wrote about, it was more about something that they became that. They became Lectio Divina. They became uh, someone that offered the wisdom of spiritual direction. They became contemplation and meditation. Um, I was really looking to identify spiritual disciplines and people of African-American descent, disciplines that they practice that they would not have been noted as having practicing or having practiced these disciplines if I didn't point them out. Talk about Dr. King. You um, listed him as spiritual director and prayer, and you tied that to the prophetic. Mm -hmm. Yes. One of my first passions is prayer. I love the discipline of prayer. My mother was an intercessor. My grandmother was an intercessor. Today, I went to the homegoing service of a man who was an intercessor. Martin Luther King, I mean, prayer was, it's easy to identify prayer in our communities. Uh, we are, we've always been a people of prayer and we still are. We've, and so Martin Luther King was an intercessor. I believe he received his directives from God to move forward. He was a student of Gandhi which made him uh, a contemplative because he learned the discipline and the practice of, of meditation, of stillness, of quieting himself, of listening. And in this listening, he learned the ability to uh, receive directives from God. He prayed with his uh, spiritual leaders. He prayed with his wife. And it's out of this prayer lifestyle 
that he knew the next step to do, even at the cost of his own life. And so uh, I use identify Martin Luther King as not just a spiritual director, like in a session one-on-one or with a small group, uh, listening to people and uh, uh, that loving listening presence, but how he had that loving listening presence as God used him to direct a nation through the civil rights movement and freedom for people of color. Yeah, you just said it. Uh, My thought was that he was a spiritual director for the whole country and for the whole world in terms of the impact that he had. So you quoted him on page 42 and you said, as, as you quoted him, he said, contemplative action is action that emerges from our real encounters with God. And one of the things I see happening in the world today is there's a lot of angry people, a lot of hurt people, a lot of scared people, and there's a lot of action. It's not that we're inactive, but it's that that action is not fruitful because it's often coming up against one another, not hearing one another, and um, it almost seems to backfire. So there's something that's being referred here that it's out of an overflow of a depth, a depth with God that it's contemplative and yet it's action. So can you talk about that? And as a as a minister of the gospel, how that has worked for you, because in ministry, it's there's such a pull to do. Can you ask a pat question, Michael? <laughs> that was a pat question. Yeah, I, I, I think I probably asked five questions there. But yeah, just start with this whole idea. Yeah, I'll start with to be to be. The importance is to be more so than to do. The first call is to be. Uh, because I won't know what to do if I don't first stop to know how to be. And in my being is God that gives me directives to do. So therefore, my doing is more effective than me just catapulting out of my own desire. So that's the to be and to do. Well, at least one aspect. And then we talk about the journey of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King had a rich genealogy. He had a rich uh, heritage. His father was a pastor. His mother was an intercessor. So he and he was a student of the word and he studied the lives of others. And all of this was in him when he went to serve the country. So he he could practice nonviolence because he knew God loved him and he knew what love is and what love was because God is love. And I can only love another if I first know God loves me because it's out of the overflow of God's love for me that I'm able to share with others. That's why David says my cup runs over. He had enough love, not just for himself, but he had a cup full of love that ran over to love others. And so when we look at the violence in the street, and if I am not full, if I don't know, um, if I don't see any hope, if I'm tired, I don't know all this going on in the mind of a person who practices violence. But I know as an African-American woman, who lives in a world, I read something um, yesterday. It said that African-Americans need to be careful because there's a report out that people will have uh, road rage and run you off the road and they encourage you not to ride alone. That's a fear. Mm. So today when I went to my friend's funeral, I did not want to go alone because I didn't know what people were are are capable of. So I can't I can't point the finger. It's not that I agree with violence. But if I don't know what you've been through. If I don't know your struggle, if I don't know how what makes you act out. Then who am I? To judge. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying if if that's what's necessary for us to be heard sometime, that's what's going to happen. And sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a 
That's an unpopular message, but the gospel is unpopular, isn't it, in terms of how it it invites us to uh, let go of our own agenda, which might be to react and to hate our enemy instead of Did love Jesus our enemy. Did Jesus not go into the temple and turn the tables over? And 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 I and I and I talk about in my book when I experienced a time of a low depression, the dark night of my soul. But of course, I couldn't explain everything. But I remember being in this mental state where I I was I had this rage in me, and I didn't know where it was coming from. I I couldn't get no relief, and I looked in in our bedroom, and I saw these big beautiful armoires, and I just wanted to pick that armoire up and turn it over because there was and nobody had done anything to me personally. It was just this point of life, and I looked at that armoire and I was like, well, that's probably not a good idea. I'll put a big dent in the wall. (laughs) we probably have to get some more sheetrock. So that's not a good idea. So I I hurried down to the uh, family room and there was a little card table in there with a little plastic top and little metal legs. And I threw that over and I felt better. I wasn't hurting anybody, but that was within the privacy of my own home. So. Sometimes we have to walk a mile in another person's shoes. If I don't have food, if I can't pay my bills, if I don't have a job, if my child has been shot, can you talk about um, Mrs. Coretta Scott King? Dr. King's wife, who just two years or so ago that she passed. Is that correct? Uh, It's been a few years. Uh, I had an opportunity of attending her homegoing service at um, uh, Bishop Long's church there in Atlanta, New Birth. Uh, I was blessed to go to school with Bishop Long, who passed a few years ago. But Doctor, she was also had several honorary degrees. She was a pillar in um, Dr. King's life, and her life was oft, often threatened even when he wasn't there. Um, I mean, we don't have any record of her committing any violent scene, but can you imagine your life being threatened while your husband's away trying to serve his country? Excuse me, and be faithful to his assignment. So, um, I talk about Dr. King as being an intercessor and a spiritual rights, a spiritual director, the discipline of prayer and spiritual direction. And I talk about Mrs. King with prayer and civil rights. And I kind of took the liberty to develop this discipline called civil rights, like uh, what it takes to cause change, what it takes to make a difference. And uh, Mrs. King took up that mantle to continue to serve our community, even after her husband had passed. And the importance of women, strong Black women in the African-American community, such as Dr. Coretta Scott King. And then her children went on to also be in ministry. Uh, and I was a professor at Colorado Christian, and I'm actually blanking on which of the grown daughters it was, but she came um, and spoke at the university, which was a radical thing back then for that. Bernice. Yes, Bernice. yes. Dr. Yeah. Bernice. Yes, yes. Yes, it was. And isn't Dr. King's son uh, Dexter, and he's serving uh-huh. in Atlanta? Yes. uh, Yes, he is. Yes. Yes. I don't know a whole lot about them, but I know they're still serving and carrying the mantle of their parents. And how could they not? You can't get away from it. Right. But but those those, his parents, they're they're like one of a kind. I mean, there's only one uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and there's only one Coretta Scott King. Can you talk about Dr. Renita Weems? And yeah. I was so fascinated by this uh, this discipline of detachment and attachment. And one of the things that I used to teach um, classes at the seminary on addiction, 
along with spiritual formation. And so attachment and detachment are very much related to that historically. You know, what we give our heart to, we attach to because we're made for that. So I thought it was fascinating that you included that as a discipline. Yes, uh, Dr. Weems, um, a minister of the gospel, a professor at Vanderbilt in, in Tennessee, uh, has been serving in the faith community for decades. And she talks about how she hit a brick wall. And when she hit that wall, she didn't know what to do and how she sought out other uh, spiritual faiths within the Christian, within Christendom, uh, in particular, the Catholic church um, to, for healing. And one thing that she learned and one thing also in uh, Adele Calhoun's book on spiritual discipline, she talks about uh, detachment, the discipline of detachment and attachment. But with the discipline of detachment and attachment, when I come away from something, I'm letting that go. So therefore, I have a void. I have an open space. So in order for me to live a healthy life, when I detach from something that I'm accustomed to having that space filled, then it's imperative that I attach to something of greater value, which we know in this case is our relationship with the Lord. And uh, as you read the text in the Bible about the strong man that that went away and he came back, And he saw the house swept clean, but he came back seven times stronger. So that meant that the house was swept clean. Something had left, but nothing of spiritual value has filled that space. So that's why the strong man could come back seven times stronger. So um, the discipline of detachment and attachment. And so uh, for years now, I've been trying to clean my closet. Not that it's junky. I just, God has just blessed me and I just need to get rid of some stuff. And so Um, I'm going to have to detach from some things. But if I'm going to detach from some items in my closet, uh, I don't want to bring more items in. I want to find something of greater value to be to be a blessing to my soul. Uh, And so instead of uh, shopping, (laughs) maybe I need to go to the hospital or maybe I need to witness or maybe I need to do other things. But but that space is there. So we have to fill that space with something a more value than just thinking, oh, that's done. And, you know, if I'm smoking, if I'm going to smoke, then I want to stop smoking. Do I have that habit of smoking? So maybe I'll start chewing gum. So I detach from the cigarette to attach to gum. And maybe I'll detach from the gum to attach to a mint. And maybe I'll detach from the mint to drink water. And after a while, I won't even think about it. But it's a process of healing to become more holistic in the faith. Yeah, so somehow having to feed the soul with something life-giving as opposed to just starving uh, and hoping that that withers because oftentimes that doesn't work. Yes, oftentimes it doesn't. I am wondering, I have, I have a final question, and then I don't know if you have time, but I'm wondering if as we wrap up, you would be willing and able to lead us in a brief Lectio Divina with a, a passage of scripture that's on your heart. And so maybe the maybe the question could be the segue. Here's my question. And this is what I I spend a lot of time thinking about. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ heal racism in America? I think about the uh, scripture. And Joshua that says, meditate on the word day and night. And do according to all that is written therein. And then I will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. So if the world, if America meditated on the truth of the gospel, and Paul encourages us to rightly divide it, not to have lenses, our own lenses when we come. The healing is in the Bible. And at the end of the day, love is the key. If if we follow the great commandment and the great commission and 2 Chronicles 7.14, we have healing in the land. But we got to put the work in. And I think sometimes we become 
overwhelmed with the massiveness of healing that needs to occur. And healing starts with one person at a time, one conversation at a time. And the scripture I would like for us to meditate on for Lectio is Psalm um, 46 and 10. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, that's a lot to chew off. So we're going to, if we look at uh, this is, 10 A, B, and C. So A would be, be still and know that I am God. B would be, I will be exalted among the nations. C would be, I will be exalted in the earth. And we know that uh, this whole passage is in the midst of nations raging, according to verse six. The earth is melting. There's desolations. There are wars. And there's fire. And God is saying in the midst of the chaos. In the midst of uncertainty. And destruction. And loss and pain and anguish. And if we look at it personally in our own lives, in the midst of our own busyness and activities and ideologies and idolatry, God is saying, stop, pause, sit, rest, and be still and know that I am God. God of the earth and God of the nations. Be still. And know that I am God. You be still. You know. You honor me as Lord. And as we look at this scripture, we want to extract three or four words that speak to you. It may be be still and. It may be know that I. It may be I am God. Just identify three or four words that speak to you. Just focus on those words. And ask God, what is he saying to you as it relates to those few words? And then as we move further, We listen once again. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Now I'm going to ask you to choose one word. Just one word. And when you have that one word, just meditate on it. It's one single word 
that God is speaking to you to focus on. And how God is calling you to live about that word in your life today and tomorrow and days to come. One word. God, we thank you for this time your presence, your direction, and your power. We know that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will stand forever. We thank you for this time that you have allowed us to sit at your feet and to sup with you. And we pray that we are the better because we dare to sit and listen and grow and apply as disciples in the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Peacock, I, I think I'm only a few years younger than you. Um, not that many, but I feel like I've been sitting with uh, a spiritual sage and it's really, really beyond talking about your book. It's just so rich to, uh, to be with your soul. So I thank you for your time and for all the, the wisdom and the care and the labor that went into writing soul care in African-American practice, truly a blessing being with you. So thank you. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to us continuing our conversation as the Lord leads. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.